Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another installment uh, of our special interview series. This time around, we have uh, writer and artist Wayne Vincent. We're we're gonna we're gonna be talking about uh, your your works uh, Katusha, as well as All Quiet on the Western Front, um, which is a, a recent adaptation from Eric Maria Remarque's 1920 novel, uh, a German book, which uh, I was doing a, num- a bit of research on. Very very interesting. So he was a fascinating fellow. He really was. I, I have read the book a number of times, and I always wanted to do an illustrated version of it. And when I first started doing research this time, I found out a lot more about his background. He, he was really interesting. But but right before we get into that, uh, for you listeners out there, uh, thank you again for tuning in. You can find us you know, wherever your podcasts are, are, are sold. Um, we're on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud. Um, our social media is at the Comics Pals. Uh, and if you have any questions for us, maybe even some follow-ups for, for Wayne after you, you guys sort of hear the, the episode, please reach out to us at comicspals at gmail.com. More than happy to, to chat through with you guys um, and really excited to, to dig in. So with that, um, Wayne, uh, please tell me tell me a bit more about um, uh, about Eric. I'm, I'm excited because uh, uh, my first question was going to be, you know, the, why, why this book and why the adaptation? Well, it, to me, there are, there's a handful of, uh, well, there's a lot of great war novels, but there's like the top five, and that would be, definitely be one of the great war novels of all time, all five of us to front. He, um, I, I can't remember when I first read it. I, I, I can't remember if I was in school or I was in the Navy. Everybody does a lot of reading in the Navy. You know, you have to see, you go, you got to have something to do. But uh, uh, I remember reading it then, and... Um, of course, I've seen that there have been two movie versions. You know, there was one oh. in 1930, which is the, the early, early sound film, which is still a great movie. And there was one made for TV in the uh, late 70s, and it was real good, too. And there's been talk of a third one, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't heard anything myself. But anyway, of course, he, he was a German soldier in, in uh, World War I, and I found out that he, did it, he went into combat uh, in the summer of 1917, and he was in combat for about three or four months and was badly wounded, and um, and he didn't go into combat again. Of course, the, the, the people in the story, the book, pretty much experienced the entire war. And uh, But I've, after reading about him and reading the book, which I've probably read three times during this illustrated version, um, I... I really took it apart with a fine-tooth comb, and I'll probably never want to read it again. Maybe I will. I don't know. But I've, I, I know it so well. But I've decided that the book, the story begins in, like, the late spring of 1917. And because uh, it's, it's you can tell they're coming out of the line for, you know, for a period, and they're all, they're all beat up, and nearly half the company has been killed. And they accompany uh, uh, the German army. It's about 150 people. And uh, um, they go into a rest camp and get replacements and all that stuff and then go back into action. But it just seemed, it makes sense from the flow of the book that that's when it begins. And then later, it does mention certain dates. Like it mentioned like the summer of 1918 was real terrible and all that. And it mentioned when the characters killed in October of 1918. So I figured... He probably was writing about what he knew exactly. Of course, he learned a lot about things when he was in the hospital, talking to other soldiers. So uh, I think that was an important element of it. But um, he, you know, he taught school for a while after the war, and he wrote the book. And they say he wrote, sat down and wrote the book in a hurry. I mean, it wasn't like he really, you know, mulled over it. But it's it's so good, and it's. It's such a personable, hmm. moving story. I mean, there are things about the characters and the things he says which are very, just have a lot of feeling to them. But, you know, he wrote about a whole bunch of other books after after that, and I've never read any of them. I don't know anybody has, but they were good, and I'll say they were all good. There's been several movies made of some of his other books, but um, that is the one everybody remembers. But also about him, it made him immediately rich and immediately famous. And during the 1930s, 
he had fa- affairs with Marlena Dietrich, uh, Dolores Del Rio, and, um, oh gosh, what's the other one? Oh man, she was a knockout. I can't remember her name. Um, but he married Paulette Goddard. I don't know if you know who she was. She was an actress in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. In fact, um, she had a fling a long time with um, um, Charlie Chaplin. And huh. uh, but anyway, during during that time, you know, he he had moved like to Switzerland and then eventually to America and back and forth. And Hitler did not like his book, and they burned his book. And his sister was arrested, and I'm not sure what, and guillotined by the Nazis. You know, all that wow. during that time, and and. And um, I don't know the the background a lot about why and all that, but um, he I think he finally lived in the U.S. He um, and, and and of course married uh, Paulette Goddard, and the family um, I think his and her family still have the uh, the rights of the book, and that was a little bit of a pain in the neck getting that because we had to deal with lawyers and all that stuff, and they're all for NYU. And they all seem to think that, well, we'll spend 15 minutes a month on this, whether we have to or not. It took forever to finally get it. I, I was almost at the point to say, forget it. You know, I'll just do something else. But that, as I say, his book, uh, I've always wanted to do. I, I, I've already done a version of, uh, uh, of The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane several years ago. And um, there are other books I would like to do. One I would really like to do is Audie Murphy's To Hell and Back. Are you familiar with him, Audie Murphy? That, no. Audie Murphy was the most decorated American soldier in World War II. And he is, he was a kid from East Texas. I mean, he was a kid, but he was a movie star. He was in a lot of movies in the 50s and on up in the 60s. He died, he was killed in a plane crash about 1970. But early, after the not too long after the war, uh, a publisher said they liked him to do the story. He had a, had a ghostwriter working with him and all. But it, and there was a movie about it in the 1955 where he played himself. But uh, the book is wonderful. I mean, it was just very well written, and I would love to do an illustrated version of that. But um, I don't know how possible that is. Yeah, something for, for, for down the line. Um, uh, but, but, but sticking with... Um, all quiet on the on the Western Front. So, so you described, you know, how you got familiar with the book. Um, how did you get familiar with with comics in general? And then uh, I would like to, to know how you sort of decided. Okay, this this book needs to be translated into that medium. Well, um, it, it, I've always I read comics as a kid. I, I'm I'm seventy. I, I started reading comics in the late fifties, and. Uh, I have never been a superhero fan. I mean, just it just doesn't do anything for me. I can't. I don't know anybody that can fly, you know. And nobody that's bulletproof and all like that, you know. So I um I uh I read a lot of uh, war comics. There were a lot of them back then. I liked Classics Illustrated, and they did a version of All Quiet back then. It's not very good, that, you know. And of course, a lot of that artwork in some of those books were not that great, but. Um, I like I like realism. I like history, and, and most of my stuff has been involved. I mean, and even the Nam, I and mean, that was a a real jump into the history. And uh, I, I love that sort of thing. I, uh, World War Two is endless about things you could use, but uh, All Quiet had been a, a comic at one time, and I just wanted to do a better job of it, you know. And also, um, I this is funny. I have a, some friends in the Carolinas that were big reenactors. They did Civil War reenacted, that Revolutionary War reenacting, World War II sometimes. They were in a, some kind of movie where they were being addressed as Vietnam things one time. But the, the guy that did, in 1989, I met this guy from, I was at a comic convention in Greenville, South Carolina. And um, I met this guy, um, and he said, the most fun reenactment they do is World War One reenactment, and uh, they they did it in um, Pennsylvania. Uh, they had uh, this organization had uh, leased a section of a farm that wasn't being used, 
and they had trenches and barbed wire and bunkers and all that stuff, you know. And um, I said, I'd love to come take pictures. Well, he says, if you want to take pictures, you need to get in the trenches. You need to be in uniform, you know. Oh. So I got me a, a, I borrowed a lot of stuff, uh, but I went, I went just as a doughboy, World War One American soldier, you know. And um, I did it for about 10 years. Had a great time. Wow. Uh, they they uh, usually do it in the fall. So a few times I went to the spring. They have an uh, event on the first weekend in November, and they have one in April. And um, and I tell you, you get out there at night, and it, it's foggy, and there's machine guns firing, and uh, uh, starlight shells going up, and those balloon, you know, those balloon, uh, um, parachute flares coming down. It's very realistic. And uh, so I figure I had a good opening right there for, you know, knowing about World War One. I. I mean, just from the pictures I had taken. But I had a lot of books, and I'd read a lot about it and all that. And that was interested that when I finally started doing this, I started picking up on things in Aqua on the Western Front that I had not noticed before. There's a part in there where they're in a cemetery, and they're being shelled. And the thing is, I always had the uh, the idea that this was uh, like an old cemetery, like a you know stone headstones and all that stuff. And the in both movie versions have showed that. But after really reading this again, I realized this was not an old cemetery. This was a new, like a military cemetery where they were burying dead German soldiers. And I re- so I drew it that way when I did this version. A lot of my old friends, oh, that can't be right. That can't be right. But it is. I believe me. I've studied enough to know that it is. But there's several things in the book that I would not have recognized if I hadn't been a reenactor like that. I mean, uh, I think when I first read the book, I would have noticed them. And, and, and the way that the, the, the trench defenses were and how they would retreat through the defenses, the, the trenches. And they would have these things called um, um, trench blocks. But none of these things are very much described in the book. But what it is, it's like a, it's like a, a, a box, just a frame of a box in wood with barbed wire put around around it. And as they retreat in the trench, they would pull that down in the trench so the enemy would be stopped by them, hopefully. And little things like that. So, you know... Uh, but as I say, it's a wonderful book. I mean, I don't know anybody that hadn't read it that haven't felt moved by it. And um, so that's one reason I wanted to do that. Actually, I, I had written down that that page in particular, um, page page 27, the, the scene that you're talking about, um, and, and specifically panel three, because that to me was such a, a poignant scene. But uh, specifically that scene, the way that you were able to uh, use the visual representation of Earth in so many ways um, was was absolutely astounding to me. Uh, the the obviously the allusion to the fact that you know the, these men uh, were crossing a cemetery are themselves in the dirt, but they need the dirt, the earth itself to, to get down. It's it's life as much as it is death. Incredible. Anybody and I mentioned Audie Murphy in his book. He talks about you 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 learn to read the ground. You know, a, a person that's not um, that's not experienced in that, they would be shot at, and they wouldn't know that they would be safe if they just jumped down right here, a little spot. It was just like 18 inches, a little bit lower than everything else. And but of course, Murphy was a hunter before the war, and you had to sneak up on animals, deer and quail and stuff like that. And uh, that's. And they, you, you learn the earth. I, I'm, I've never, you know, been in combat, but I have uh, talked to a lot of people that were, and uh, uh, you live close to the ground. <laughs> yeah, you really did. It was, um, yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I, I think the, the 18 inches was mentioned throughout. So it was something that, you know, whenever there were scenes um, where you would, but you would see the shooting start. That was the first thing that, that would flash into my mind because it was, um, I forget who it was, Paul. Paul, I think, was talking to one of the recruits. You know, he, he was still young and it, the recruit was scared. But he's like, all you have to do is follow these rules. They're, they're simple. They're rules. But once you're in, once you're in action, it, it just dissipates because you're in a totally different headspace. I've read a lot about this. Training people for war is a very difficult thing, apparently. 
And um, a, a lot, I, 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 I know, I knew a guy that was in the division in World War II. He was in the 90th Division. And they had been together in the States for two years, and they trained constantly. But when they, they went into Normandy after several days after the invasion, you know, and they were so bad, they pulled them out of the line and retrained them again because it's like, I don't know. Um, well, the Army, of course, as I was in the Navy you now, the Army, I, mean, I always remember uh, some the movie Dirty Dozen, the, that General Ernest Bordenine said, uh, well, all we do is expect uh, soldiers to follow orders and kill the enemy. Well, there's a lot more to it than that, you know? And I think for that reason, a lot of people went into combat um, not ready. Yeah, and, and the book touches upon that in incredible detail. You know, um, the, the the trials that Paul goes through, Cat. Um, he learns more from Cat and the veterans than he did ever in training. Yeah. That's where you learn it. From somebody that knows it, and it, they're they're the what was it the the uh, the old guard or the old folk? I think that, that there was they had mentioned um, that you know that's where you get your actual your actual training where um, the the scenes with the bayonet versus the spade, for example, where you know that that was much more valuable than anything else. And so I I, I did want to to know if the your experience in the navy at all helped inform some of these scenes especially in terms of um accuracy with respect to, to weaponry and, and maybe uh military tactics no but it, it it did i think it did being in the military is a good thing for this because you understand how um well how do i put this i don't know how ridiculous it can be <laughs> more than anything i mean in people together and, and you know, I can I can see the scenes of him with his friends and stuff like that, and I I, I, I know that if nothing else about you you go into the military and it changes you. Even if you don't go into combat, you go into the military and you meet people you've never never you know known. You meet people from everywhere. I mean, when I was on the ship I was on, we had guys from just about everywhere, and I got to be friends with a whole lot of them and. Uh, the way people, I, I don't know, the military can be really it, it, a lot of chicken shit, which they, you know, you can see that too, from the, you know. And I think, from what I've heard, it's a lot better now than it used to be. But uh, uh, most people that are in the military don't care for it very much. I mean, uh, um, I have a, a, a good friend that was in Vietnam. Well, in fact, we use some of his stories for the nom, the comic, you know. And he, uh, he, he, he was in one seventy third Airborne. It's a tough outfit, and he saw a lot of combat. But he hated the army. <laughs> he says, you know, there was something about being with other people and even being in the combat zone that I can't, I can't help but feel it was stirring for him. He, he kind of, I don't say he liked it, but he felt, I can't even describe it, but. He, uh, he stayed over there longer than he had to. And his excuse was that he stayed over longer, so when he got home, he would be out of the Army. And he hated the Army. You know, he said, I don't want to go back to some base in the U.S. and spend six months in, in the Army when I know I'm, I'm going to be getting out. And, and he just, it's just people, people are that way about the military. I enjoyed my time in the Navy. It was a great experience. Everybody I know that was in there with me agrees that it was a good experience for him. But man, I wouldn't do it for twenty years for nothing. I mean, there are people that do, and that's fine. I mean, I've known some fine people who are regular in the military. I think you see more of that now than you did when I was in. It, it did help me being in the Navy. It, I think it did for everything I've done in in my work. So you you've you mentioned the Nam uh, a, a number of times, and for, for those for those listeners who don't know, it was a uh, a comic published by Marvel. Um, and it focused specifically on, you know, war stories and those coming out of um, Vietnam. And it, it's funny, uh, I, b b before this, doing research, um, I had a, my aunt works at TJ Maxx. She had bought me just some random assortment of, you know, comics that were in a bag that they were selling. And the nom was actually one of those included. And uh, it was it was a crazy moment to, to have been 
flipping through, doing research and realizing, wait a minute, wait, please t- tell me about that. Cause I, I would love to hear about that. And then you've, you've also worked on, on Savage Tales, you know. This is how I got into comics. Well, I tell you, uh, as I say, I've never been interested in doing superheroes, but I, at one time in the early, in the mid seventies, I went to several comic conventions in New York and I talked with some people at Marvel and I had artwork and stuff like that, but I didn't do any superheroes and all that. And, um, I forget who it was I talked to that really liked my color work. And he says, if you move up here, we can give you enough color work to uh, live on. You can, you, know, be able, you can learn and all that. Well, I was I had a girlfriend at home I was going to get married to. And I decided, I don't want to move to New York. So it was like 10 years later, in 1986, I, was, I went by and got some gas at the station. I went, it was a convenience store. And on the counter they had the first issue of the new savage tales and it was war stories and uh, westerns and action stories black and white and all that and uh i said well i can do this and uh i did i did some do several stories up and i sent it i had story ideas and artwork and i sent to larry hammer i never met larry you know he he did the introduction for katusha i don't know if you knew that but he larry's i've known him for a long time but he, he, the very first time I talked to him, he says, I can use you for Savage Tales. And I think I did three stories before it was canceled. But he told me the first time, he says, we have a new comic called The Nom coming out. And uh, Michael Golden's a little bit slow sometimes, so we'd like to use you as a fill-in artist. But by issue 14, the book was mine. I, I, you know, I was full-time on it. But um, that, So that's how I got started. But I love Savage Tales because um, I did... Um, Three stories, I think it was. I was working on a fourth of his candle. But uh, one was about um, uh, French foreign legionnaires in Mexico in 1860. And one was about uh, um, a German tank battle in Russia in World War II. And then another idea was about the Chindits, the British commandos in uh, Burma in World War II. And uh, so you did a variety of things. I really liked that. And, uh, of course, I loved the NOM, too. But um, I was on it for about five years, and I wow. did. There were a few filling issues other people did and all that. But uh, uh, and I started doing. Um, well, I got about eight months ahead. I was way ahead on the, the book, so I, I, I was looking for. Um, uh, I, I kept pushing pushing ideas to Marvel, you know. And but Marvel, the NOM was the fifth wheel for them. They. You know, it was kind of odd for them. You know, they weren't interested in anything else other than, you know, superheroes and that. So I started doing some books or some independent stuff. And um, after that, it kind of dried up for many years because it was uh, the, the market had gone down and all that. So then then I it, it kind of it started coming back a little bit. And now I was. uh I was doing a lot of commercial artwork and stuff like that, but I wanted to get back into comics and it was pretty easy getting back in. I mean, so I, I you know, uh, I've been busy for about um, 15 years or something like that. That's wow. That, that, that's really interesting to, to, to sort of think. Uh, and, and it was just kind of like an, uh, an easier entrance back in. Like how, how was that process to, to get back? Well, um, I, I wanted to do something and um, word got out. It, it was so funny. A lot of people thought I was dead or something. Didn't know where I was at. And uh, a friend of mine called um, uh, Jim Storanko. And you met him, yeah. And um, I've met him a few times over the years. And uh, um, he, um, my friend mentions, hey, you know, Wayne Vincent's wanting to do a graphic novel or something. And he kind of put the word out, and it. Um, uh, that's when I did the uh, Red Badge of Courage, and um, I'm trying to remember what all I, I, I did. Uh, um, I illustrated a, a one on the history of Vietnam War that uh, um, Dwight Zimmerman wrote, and then I did a, a illustrated one he wrote called the um, um, should have him at, at, at arm's length so I can remember. It was called the the Hammer and the Anvil. Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the end of slavery in America. And I did that. And after that, um, just different things for different people, you know. And uh, 
I did a whole bunch of books for I mean, six books for uh, a publisher, um, Zenith. That were a couple of Civil War, about three World War Two. These were these were like nonfiction histories. They were not, you know, like with fictitious characters. And I've done several things like that for several publishers. And um, well, Katusha was something I wanted to do for a long time. That is my that's the biggest thing I've done in my life so far. I mean, um, and it was, it, it came from the opportunity to visit, uh, Eastern Europe, which I had in the late nineties. And, um, I, I was in a, a party in Odessa and I think it was 98, 99. I'm not sure. And, um, these ladies were sitting around singing. They like they, they're very musical people. They really are. It's almost like Italians in a way. You know, they're the 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 uh, you hear some of those beautiful voices and and music from over there. And um, they were singing all these songs at this party. And uh, all of a sudden, they started singing this song, and it was like racking the roof. I mean, it was just like they were really into it. And I I, I heard that tune before. And um, this girl looked at me and said, you look like you recognize that. And I said, what is that? She says, that's Katusha. Katusha is a song that was written by a Ukrainian in the uh, 1930s, and it became one of the most popular songs in the Red Army in World War II. And that just, that just stuck in my head, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. And uh, I, I, I sat down, and I, I did some I did some drawings for it and just like a few pages and all that. And a friend of mine saw it and she said, man, you got to do this, you know? And I, I think I worked on it about 12 years between projects and, and it, um, I made two trips to, uh, Eastern Europe just to research it. Um, I, um, went over there and see 2005 and went back in 2012 and that finished me up for the research. And I read everything I could about the culture over there, about the Soviet Union, about World War II, and, and the and the uh, Eastern Front. And um, it, I put blood, sweat, and tears into that book. I, I tell you, it's it's. Um, I'm not sure I want to do anything like that again. <laughs> I mean, it, it's. I enjoyed it, and it was just fulfilling and all that. But. Um, that's just too much, I tell you. But, <laughs> well, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of people helped. I met a lot of neat people over there and, and over here, too, um, that are, uh, are Ukrainian. Or, now, see, that's a, that's a big difference between Ukrainian and Russian. I mean, there are, there are things that bring them together, and there are things that tear them apart, <laughs> you know? And I tried to get that. And although she's fighting to the Red Army, in the war, she's a Ukrainian. She's not a Russian. She she makes that clear, and uh, especially at the end, she sees things that are happening where the there are a lot of Ukrainians that fought against the Russians, and uh, and she understands. She she said, you know, she's looking. She's telling the story as an old woman, and she says, at the time it angered me, but I understand it now. You know, and uh, there's a lot of uh, oh, I've I heard. I heard stories that make you cry. I tell you, um, that we've never had a war like that. The United States is. Now, I hope we never do experience a war like that. Everybody lost somebody. Everybody, and um, it, it's just it, it's still so alive over there. I mean, we would. I hired a guy to translate for me and, and drive me. We spent two weeks kind of going through. Western Ukraine, and he, um, we would go up to a, let's see, a little town there, some little village, and uh, there was a guy on a horse, a, a, in a wagon pulled by a horse, I remember, and uh, uh, we pulled up to him, and the guy says, are there anybody, is there anybody here in this village that was in World War II? And he says, yeah, go right down there, there's an old lady working in her garden down there, and uh, she um we went down and spent about 45 minutes talking to her. And she was just as neat as can be. <laughs> Little white whiskers, I remember. She was kind of, I mean, her hands were like dyed by the soil. I mean, really. You could, you know, and, uh, but she was born in 1926. 
year older, wow. year younger than my father. And she had, she had uh, lived through the terror famine of the early thirties. That you know, when Stalin starved like a four and a half million Ukrainians in that. And uh, she said that was worse than the war. But she had lived during the through the German uh, occupation and all that stuff. I remember something she said. She said the front line German soldier was a gentleman, but the ones that came after them were monsters. I remember her saying that. But I talked to I talked to veterans. Uh, I talked to all kinds of people that experienced stuff like that in different in different areas. Um, I, when I was there in 2005, Red Army veterans would not talk to an American. They they just they were standoffish. But when I went back, I don't know something that they got over it, I guess, and they were open. Uh, and I met you know all these guys that had been you know uh, in the Red Army. I remember one guy, um, I was at a museum, he was going to meet us there, and I turned around, and this little guy in a blue-looking, it was kind of a veteran's uniform, standing there at attention, and he was going to meet us there, and he had been a, a, an engineer, a, um, a sapper, as they called him, and um, I said, he was 92, and I remember I said to him, I says, you look so healthy. I mean, he had just such color, had pink cheeks and all that. He says, I've had two heart attacks. <laughs> so, you know, he wasn't as healthy as he looked. But I'm probably getting on. You probably have a question. No, I I, uh, I appreciate that. I, um, you know, do, doing doing some of the research for, for Katusha, I, I had actually thought, um, and especially the way that you opened the book with, with tanks, uh, I, I had actually thought you were, the, the book was named after uh, the Katusha uh, tanks. So, no, that, that Katusha was, well, Katusha is a song, but I name her Katusha. What Katusha is, it's a nickname. It's uh, they have a Katarina. We have Catherine. We have uh, Kathy. They have Katusha, and that's where that comes from. So, and I've met several people who are named Katusha. I mean, you know, they were called that and all that. But uh, um, I remember at the comic convention in New York one time, this girl came by. She looked down. She said. That's my name. And she was uh, Jewish from Ukraine. And her grandmother called her that, you know. So uh, so it's, it's, it's fairly common, you know. But uh, everybody from over there that would see it would think of the song. I mean, that's just, it's so well known. I mean, in 2005 when I was there, I was walking down the street of Kiev with my um, uh, translator. And... Uh, these five girls, teenage girls, came running over to us, and uh, they said, she, one of them says, are you an American? I said, yeah. She says, well, we're in an English language school in our high school, and all that, you know. And they got to ask me a lot of questions. They were working their English and all that, you know. They invited me to come to the school, but I never got a chance to. But <clears throat> uh, they said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm working on a book about Ukraine and the war. And they said, what's it called? And I said, Katusha. And they laughed, and they started singing the song right there on the sidewalk. You know, so it's it's that well known. You know, this is one. You know, talking about being a name of a tank. I guess you're familiar with the T thirty four, which is the Russian tank of World War Two. Um, every town, every every town of any size over there in Ukraine, or I'm sure Belarus, and of course in Russia, they have an old T thirty four sitting in the town square. Everywhere. I mean, you see them everywhere, and it's because everybody knows about them. And they're 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 put there as a monument, you know. And I saw a friend of mine got a new thing. This is probably over the last few days uh, about uh, Laos, you know, next to Vietnam and Cambodia over there. It was an ally of the Soviet Union. Well, recently, Laos sent to Russia thirty. T-34s that were given to them back in the 60s. And they're, they're, they're all look brand new. They're, they're running, and they can use them for parades or movies or anything like that. I mean, that tank, they're, they're everywhere. I mean, um, it, it, it's it, the only tank that's been made, they made more of was the Sherman World War II, American tank. They made about fifty thousand, I think, and they made like forty nine thousand T thirty fours. But they oh, sent wow. them out to all these countries, you know, they, they were allied with and all that. So it, the the T thirty four 
that, that hey, listen, Katusha was the main character in that, but um, the T-34 was like the next character, I'd say. Yeah, uh, and and I, I especially like how you, you open up um, Katusha with, you know, it's, it's, it's instant action. You open it up with these tanks. You open it up with what essentially is, you know, this existential dread that just drops in. Well, I, I've, 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 you know, although I've been, I was in the Navy, I've always been, warfare is always fascinating. And tanks are, they're like dinosaurs. They're scary. They're like, they're like you know, a Tyrannosaurus coming at you or a T-34. Both of them can do damage, you know what I mean? Um, so, I, and I remember hearing stories from guys I knew in war too against the German tanks and all that. And uh, um, it's a scary thing. I mean, golly Moses. Um, if, if the very, you know, I have one scene in there where she's in training and the guy, the guy with no face, you know, the guy that said, oh, his face blown off. He says that you have the cannon and you got two machine guns, but he says the treads are as dreaded a weapon as anything. I mean, you don't want to get run over, you know. And uh, the, uh, the, that was a, poly, a thing that they would do, and especially in the snow, where Germans would dig their foxholes in the snow, they would just pull over and spin those treads until they mashed them in the ground. You know, that's scary. That's scary. You know? Little little walking monsters, that's, that's frightening, yeah. Um, so uh, I, I did just want to... Um, quickly just just call out katusha so for uh, for listeners it is um i would say an opus it is a massively researched book uh, nearly 580 pages it is um i i'll be honest uh, i didn't get very far through um it it's it's just there there's so much there but um i i i, I just want to ask these these war stories what to you is their their value outside of uh, outside of just providing the the context and the history? You know, what 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 are the things that people should be drawing from these? People people need to be aware of terrible times. Uh, I mean, um, as I say, I know most Americans I know are just kind of little about what they think about what's going on in the world or something like that. When there is so much horror, I mean, there really is, and. Um, we got it made. I mean, we, we do. It's, it's a, I, I grew up in this country, and it's a wonderful country, and I've been to a lot of other places, but I'll always come back here. And um, I, I think history is important. I mean, uh, um, what people have experienced is so interesting. I mean, for one thing, but um, I, I have known, I've known people that have been through things um, I have a. I remember I, he's, he's been dead for several years now, but I remember um, I go to a, a little church down here, which I, I grew up practically because I live right in the, my father's house like that and all. And uh, people say, What got you into World War II? I says, Probably my church. I says, All my parents were from that generation. So consequently, all my friends were from the World War II generation. And. Um, my father is one of the last ones down there. That church still still living from all those people I knew. I mean, I, I can walk through that cemetery up there and, and see all these names, people I've known, and a lot of them have the whole have the military, you know, veterans headstones. They'll say what division they were with or something like that, and that's that tells a story to me. I hear somebody say, and this doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but if somebody says. I said, where were you at World War II? Oh, I was in the Army. I said, what was your outfit? He said, oh, I was in the 36th Division in Italy. And I know the story. I know where they were at. Are you, or I, have a, I have an uncle. Who's, I, have, I had breakfast with him this morning, me and my dad, uh, Uncle Jim. He is um, 97, nearly 98. Wow. And, you know, can't hardly hear, can't hardly see. But he's, you know, neat, neat guy. But he, he was in the... Um, uh, Signal Corps in World War II. He had worked for a Western Electric on phone, on phone lines and stuff like that before the war. So he was drafted. They put him in the Signal Corps. And he uh, he went to the Pacific. And uh, he spent two and a half years in the Pacific. 
Didn't get paid a single time. He says, no where to spend the money on, you know. He was on Guadalcanal before, after the battle was over. He spent a year on Bougainville, which was a long campaign, and then went to the Philippines. It's in the Battle of Manila. People don't realize this. The most destroyed capital city of World War II was Warsaw, Poland. But the second was Manila in the Philippines because the uh, the Japanese troops refused to, well, like in the early in the war, we had it, they, we had made an open city and we left, you know. They decided to fight for every building. 100,000 Filipino civilians were killed. Wow. But he was in that. So, you know, these stories that people have, um, they're going to be lost to us, you know. Um, they're they're going to be lost to us. And they're important things. And people, I think, you know, they say, if you, you know, those that don't remember history are fated to repeat it, you know. And I believe, I believe that's true. Um, we see things that's going on now. And I saw something on YouTube recently about the, uh, the Persian corridor. Now, you probably don't know what that is. Persia, of course, is Iran, you know. And, and the, the, they're, the old uh, the old Shah, who was in, he became Shah in the early 20s, I think. He was in the 20s and 30s. And he built a railroad that linked the whole country from north to south, to south, you know. And it was a, a wonderful thing. And he was, you know, real popular and all that. When World War II came along, the Russian front, we were worried about the Russians. The British and Americans were sending supplies through the North Sea to Murmansk, and it was a very bloody campaign. They trying to get those ships and supplies to keep the Russians afloat. So they said the British and the uh, the British and the uh, Russians went to the old Shah and said, "We need to use your railroad to send supplies to the Russians so the Germans don't beat them." Hey, the old Shah liked the Germans, and he said. Not going to do it. So the Russians and the British took over the country, kicked out the old Shah, and put in his son, who was a jerk. You know, so that affected the rest of the century. You know, and with our dealings, and it's still uh, really. I mean, you think about it, it's probably still affecting our relationship with Iran now. You know, and, and there's 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 a million things like that. You can you can go back to World War II and the years before it, and connect things and see you know how uh, it affects the world we're in. And, right. Uh, uh, some people may disagree with me on some of those things, but a lot of them I believe I'm right. And that's just an example. No, absolutely. I I definitely think you know there are um, rippling effects from from all of this. I mean, it, it, one of the things even in. Um, I think all quiet on the Western Front. One of those things was uh, discussed was the, the the consequence of when you come back, like coming coming back home. The, the consequence of that is you, you you're in a different mental state. You you have different experiences. There's no way to to sort of coalesce back into the life you were in, and that has to affect more than more than just your family. Yeah, of course, I wasn't in I wasn't in um, combat or anything, but. I had changed. I had grown during that time I was in the Navy. And I see some little problems, you know, I had dealing with people. I wasn't the same kid, you know, so that's the... In, in capturing these, these stories and, and retelling some of these moments, how do you piece, how do you piece out the, the highlights and the, the moments that you want to show? Because, again, comics is a very, as much as it is sequential, it is static, so you have to really focus on what it is that you have to pick and, and highlight. Well, I, I tried to tell the story that was going on through her eyes. You can read history books about the same thing, but it, but it's not the same thing because I tried to show these events through her eyes. You know, I mean, um, there were a lot of things that she witnessed that were, you know, uh, real things. Uh, the Battle of Curse, the big tank battle in the, you know, the middle book. Um, was the biggest tank battle in history. It was huge. But um, also later on, when she gets to back going back through Ukraine, going through western Ukraine, she sees what has been going on since she was gone. 
you know, different people and the, through different stories and stuff like that. And um, she gets to Poland and she realizes that the houses are better built than they are in the Ukraine. And she says, well, they told us uh, that the Soviet Union had the best of everything, you know, which is not true. And uh, so I, I try to show her. Well, that, you know, the story towards the end, I mean, you, might, you probably hadn't got that far. Well, she spends the night in this big German home, like a mansion, you know, and it's totally surprising to her because even in recent Ukraine, since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, people have it's it's come a long way, but it's a poor country, and, there, and this war going on over there, it's not helping one yeah. damn bit. But um, they were, you know, th they were things that. Uh, they didn't have. I, I've talked to people who lived during the Soviet times and, and even times not long after that, that, you know, uh, you just couldn't go to the store and buy a, a gallon of milk. There would be like a truck that would come twice a month, twice a week, and you'd go out there with your bucket or a container or something and get milk. You know, so it, it's, uh, I, I think, I, I want people to see those things too, um, that, that people live different. Um, that they they you know they thought differently about things um and um well it's like you know it's like here i've done some civil war stuff i probably i don't know if i'll ever do any more but uh, people you know people live in different times and they experience different things and i just think it's important to know some of these things and to me it's very entertaining you know to, to do that it's it's always just good to have that additional context you know it, it helps um inform it helps to recontextualize a lot because th there's a lot of misconceptions sometimes and 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 because of that there's a lot of uh, otherwise brash steps perhaps taken that maybe had you stopped taken a second really really looked at the situation and and learned from that history that you could you can really move forward versus sort of regressing well it's funny i showed I, I, you know showed things to a petition to people from from over there i mean and it surprised them you know, they didn't they didn't know about a lot of this stuff. I spent uh, several days in um, Western Ukraine with some historians um, that dealt primarily with the uh, what was called the the Ukrainian insurgent army. Now they were um, they were formed during the war, and they fought the Germans, but they fought the Russians too. They fought both sides, and they fought until the fifties. I mean. Till they were wow. overwhelmed, and I, I talked to one old guy that spent like twenty five years in a um, a coal mine in Siberia because he was involved with that. No, and um, you see that the um, some of these people they wanted the, they wanted to see the Germans gone, but they dreaded the Russians coming back. They really did. Um, Russia, as I say, they have a hard relationship. They really do. Um, the, the average Russian, I think, probably looks at them as brothers. But then again, they also look at them as my brother, and I'll do with them what I want to. They're a little bit hard about that, the Ukrainians. And they, a lot of the Ukrainians don't appreciate it. That when, in, in Lviv, which is a, a western part of, the, of Ukraine, beautiful city, really one of the prettiest cities in the country. Um, it's kind of the capital of... Uh, of um, Western Ukraine, it's been it's been said that that Kiev is the um, the brains of the country, but Lviv is the heart. And um, they have a restaurant there, and they call it the restaurant without an address. I mean, you have to know where it's at. And it's funny you can find out just about anybody, but you have to go down this alley, and then you go down these stairs to another alley. And you go to this door that's got one of those little peepholes like in Prohibition, you know, and um, you have to say something um, in, in Ukrainian that's patriotic. Like I said, it's like Slava Ukraina, which means glory to Ukraine, you know, to the guy in the door, he licks you in, you know. But um, it's a great place. It, it's, it's like a, the food is reasonable and, and everybody's having a good time. And it's it's like a dungeon. It's got these 
Rick ceilings. It was like, I'm not sure what this was before, but um, it's kind of got like, you know, rough tables and, you know, everybody drinking and having a good time. And, all. and the wall, they had pictures of uh, famous Ukrainians. And, and that, in fact, one picture uh, on the wall was a guy I had met who had been in the uh, coal mine for so long, you know. But also they had a, a, a big um, site, you know, shooting, uh, you know, a bullseye with Putin's picture in the middle of it, you know. So it, it's uh, – but I, I will always do involve something about history. Um, I'm working on something now. Um, back in the when I was still working on the non, I did some stuff for some other publishers, and I did this three issue comic series called Batron, B A T T R O N, and it's 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 been put together as a graphic novel, and it's still in print. Been around in print for a long time. But Batron is an um, uh, a French foreign legionnaire in during World War Two, and uh, he's an um, he he was a refugee from the Spanish Civil War, and he came over the a lot of those that wanted to, you know have anything to do they joined the foreign legion a lot of them did, and um, he uh, spends the uh, the war in the foreign legion different all kinds of stories I mean um, I'm working on one now. Um, I have, I've been wanting to do that, get do something with that character. I'd like to get him going again. And um, I'm working on a book which takes place during the Battle of the Bulge, as a matter of fact. But he's uh, involved with that, which is kind of strange for a French foreign legionnaire. But I got it figured out. But um, and after the war, he stays in the legion. He fights in Indochina, fights in Algeria, and then becomes uh, a freelance when he retires from the you know winds up in South America and and uh, Africa, you know, all these different little brush fire wars and stuff like that. And, uh, and I can tell a lot of story, a lot of history like that through him. That'd be very, uh, very interesting for like maybe not not anthology, but very episodic. Yeah, yeah. It, it, here's a uh, the 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 one I'm working on now. Uh, I don't see where I was talking here. But he's a big bald guy. I got him bald. He just you know. Uh, it's hard to tell his age. He, he's a uh, very, you know, he, he has a lot of friends and all he's a friendly guy and all that, but he doesn't tell about his, his real background. Patron is a, a you know, a, you know, named Aguirre, whatever they call it. You know, it's not his real name. And uh, he's, he's, you know, a lot of people in the legion, they say they're always secret about their past. They don't have a past. And that's kind of the way he is. And he, um, He's not like a hard-nosed mercenary that just kill anybody. He usually gravitates towards the the side of you know the better side, so to speak. You know, he does the right thing, that kind of thing. But um, I would like to do a lot of stories about that. Yeah, uh, very interesting. And, and and pivoting a little bit, you, you mentioned art. Um, I did want to talk about your your style because it's it's not necessarily a a typical comic book style. It reminds me very much of more cartoony and i think in particular will eisner um he, he had a magazine um pns ps magazine where you know he'd, he'd go through his his military stuff all that so very much influenced from that it, it, to me well I, I i don't ink things anymore i just mine's all in pencil all of katusha and all of all quiet are in pencil uh, i've never liked my line work i think the last thing i inked like that was uh that um about abraham lincoln and um um uh, Frederick Douglass, and I did that because somebody else was going to be coloring it. I thought it'd make it easier for him to to do that. And um, it, it's um, well, I tell you, I've 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 I, I been affected by some artists. I mean, you know, I've definitely followed some. Sam Glansman, I always liked. You remember him? He's been dead for a few years now. He's uh, he was a World War II veteran. No, Sam, I'm not familiar. He he um he did a, he had a, just a. Well, he did a lot of stuff for like Charlton, some of the publishers like that in the 50s and 60s. But he did a series in the early 60s from Dell Comics. You remember, do you remember them? You probably don't. Um, no. They, they were real good. I liked them. They, they did a lot of like movie classics and stuff like that. But he did a, a series called Combat, which was uh, almost like documentary stories about World War II. 
And I remember he did, the first one he did was about the Bismarck, Battleship Bismarck, you know. And then he did one about Pearl Harbor, which was real oh, wow. good. But he did one about, the third one was about the Bataan Death March. That was a devastating comic. I mean, there was no combat in it. It began with the surrender of the Americans at Bataan and their march to the prison camp. And I remember a friend of mine said, he said, that was the grossest comic he's ever seen. And it, it doesn't, you don't really see any blood, but it's a, just a hard, I mean, the way they were treated by the Japanese was just unreal. And that was a, just a knock you off your socks, you know. But they did, he did about 20-something issues of that, and they're still in print. Um, he did, uh, did one on John F. Kennedy in the PT-109. He did that. Uh, he did uh, on Dunkirk. He did on wow. you know, um, Monte Cassino in Italy. And did a, a, you know, b- bounce back and forth between the different fronts and all that. They were good. And I, he had just a, there was something, the best way I can describe it, he had a grace about his artwork. I can't quite describe it more than that. It was just a flow to it. it he really, they, the stories really like, looked like the period that he was drawing from. Because he was in the Navy during World War II, and he did a he did a series for DC Comics called uh, USS Stevens, which is about the destroyer he was on in World War II. It has been um, reprinted the whole thing in a hardback from uh, Dover, and it's beautiful. I mean, he did these stories about his destroyer, things that happened on it. And of course, he elaborated on some of the stories, and it all had a, a connection with history. And he's in the he's in the story. You don't always recognize him, but he's in the He's in the story. He did a lot of stuff about that. Um, neat guy. And, well, him I really I like. And, of course, Russ Heath. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's been dead a couple of years. He did a lot of stuff for uh, Atlas and DC. Uh, the Haunted Tank was a thing he did for a long time for DC. You remember Sergeant Rock? You know that Sergeant Rock? Oh, yes, yes. Okay. He came about, in fact, he did a lot of Sergeant Rock, too. He was great. And there was a guy named John Severin. All these guys were dead. And um, they all affected me and, you know, impressed me in certain ways and what they did. Um, and I'm sure if you really get down and look at it real close, you can see the little things. But uh, I don't, I don't specifically draw like them usually. But uh, I, I, I'm sure I picked up. A lot of stuff by then. There's a lot of, a lot of good old artists that were really good. Um, Joe Kubert, you know. Um, oh, there's a bunch of them, and, and so they all, you know. But I just try to draw it as best I can. You know, I try to draw it. Uh, oh, this is interesting. I build a lot of models, and then here is Katusha's T34. I, I, I had I, it's a T, and I painted it like that. Just to, I, I build models in, in paint. Do you see that? Yeah. And uh, oh, wow. what I like to have them, uh, if I'm uh, particularly going to draw a whole bunch of them, I like to just, like, paint it in primer and, and draw it from that. I do that. Like, here's, a, here's a German German panther. Kind of falling apart a little bit, but, you know, gives you a little idea. So I, 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 I like that. I do a lot of I need, I look for a lot of reference. Um, when you're drawing vehicles or airplanes or something like that, it really comes in handy to have a model. Uh, I mean, you can turn it any way you want to, and you get your own perspective on it and all that. Um, as far as faces go, I have used a lot of uh, photographs of people to uh, do faces. Uh, I remember when I worked on the Nom. Um, I had I had worked I had been working at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. I was a, a security director, well first assistant and then security director, and I had forty one security guards under me, and um, a lot of them were black. So I had a lot of black characters in the op. and I would get these guys and know to sit down and I take pictures. You know they got the kick out of seeing themselves in the comic and all that. You know, and the people at I mean, there's somebody at Marvel when I said this guy knows how to buy uh, really knows how to draw black guys. And so I, I like to use faces like that. If there's a particular, well, with with Katusha, her face, I, I knew what I wanted it to look like. The Ukrainian women 
are beautiful. I guarantee you, you've never seen so many beautiful women over there. And I wanted Katusha to be cute and all that, you know, and I couldn't get it right. I couldn't quite get it right. And I remembered I knew a lady that had moved from um, moved from uh, Odessa, and she lives in uh, Panama City, Florida. And uh, I called her up, and I says, uh, how old is your daughter now? And she says, she's 14. I said, that's perfect. I'm going to be there next week. I'm going to take a bunch of pictures of her. So I took pictures of that little girl to use for Katusha. She got a kick out of it. You know? Absolutely. Uh, Wayne, thank you again. And for you listeners out there, uh, uh, this was a, another installment in our interview series. So I uh, really appreciate you guys. For everyone out there at home listening, thank you again. And uh, we'll catch you guys later.